world is waiting, whether they know it or not. It's a story they'll hear from shepherds. It's an impossibly true encounter with God discovered in a stable. And nothing will ever be the same. We'll hear a cry from a teenage mother giving birth. We'll listen to the consoling words of a father who himself needs consolation. And we'll experience the birth of a child, the birth of this child. And nothing will ever be the same. The extravagant lengths to which our God will go to be born into this night, into this darkness, and into this dirt. And all to prove to us, even as we're running away from Him, just how wildly He loves us and pursues us. Nothing will ever be the same, because nothing can ever be the same. So may the familiarity of this event never lull us to sleep. May we awaken this year to the new life being offered by this Prince of Peace. May our eyes be opened wide to see the gospel wrapped in flesh, this news that truly is the best news we could ever hope to receive. For we are the ones who are waiting, whether we know it or not. We are the ones whose hearts long to hear and hear again the story the shepherds are telling. We have become the recipients of the wild pursuit of God, and nothing, absolutely nothing, will ever be the same. So we'll worship, giving glory to God in the highest. We'll proclaim Jesus as the radiant light that shatters the darkness of every night. And we'll know the truth that's too deep for human words, that this really is God with us. He is our hope. He is our peace. He is our joy. He is our love. And because of Jesus, because of this child and all that he'll become, nothing will ever be the same. These are the pertinent promises of God. And you can follow this along if you have it on your notes. But I want to start with three of the Bible's most pertinent promises when it comes to our life today. Um, and these are all very, very recognizable verses. Promise number one is Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And then, of course, promise number two right here on the screen. Good job, Dan. Boy, he's so, isn't he good? Give him a hand. He can multitask and he always gets it back. Philippians 1, 6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And then promise number three, again, And the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are, are alive with them, who are left, will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words and these are the verses that at times bring us amazing comfort and hope and yet at other times can cause us incredible frustration can they not these are the promises that we can cling to one day and question the next let's talk about that quandary this morning first leslie alderman in his 2013 book uh, the book of times can help us start this morning's discussion so listen to what he writes here leslie alderman writes here one urban legend holds that we spend three years of our life waiting it's a great stat, but likely untrue. 
But here are some real stats about waiting. New Yorkers lead the nation in wait time. According to a 25-city survey, New Yorkers spend an average of 6 minutes and 51 seconds waiting in individual store lines. Miami comes in second at 6 minutes and 44 seconds. Who spends the least time? Clevelanders. They spend just 4 minutes and 33 seconds in line. Which lines do people hate the most? Grocery store, grocery store checkout lines. The same survey also found that half of consumers have refused to return to stores that had long wait times. The average wait time for doctors is 24 minutes, but in urban areas and among certain specialties, the waits can be much longer. Neurosurgeons have the longest wait times, 30 minutes on average. Why? All patients have questions for their doctor, but not surprisingly, surgical patients have more questions about the procedure, process, and expected outcomes. The average wait time for an ER visit was, in, was a staggering four hours and seven minutes. And this is back, that's actually back in 2009. Do you, have, do you hate waiting? Don't move to Russia. The Mystery, Shopping Provider, the Mystery Shopping Providers Association sent its spies to wait in lines in stores, banks, post offices, and drugstores in 24 European countries and found that Russian customers spent the most time waiting in queues, followed by the Italians and Bulgarians. The Swedes got off easy, just 2.2 minutes per line. So there's a few stats on waiting. I wonder this morning, though, and the question I kind of had was, how well do you do at waiting? How well are you when it comes to waiting? When it comes to waiting in line or at the stoplight or on other people or even maybe waiting on God. As the survey says, we spend a lot of time waiting. One thing I certainly try to do is I try to avoid waiting. I hate to wait in traffic backups. I just do. You know, it's like, and so I'll try to find an alternate route where it's like, oh no, how do I get stuck on the freeway when it's all backed up down by the S-curve or something? And so I go from, you know, basically when traffic is, is hardly moving, I start complaining. And Melissa's quick to point out to me, you know, well, you're complaining, Dad. <laughs> yeah, I shouldn't be. <laughs> I shouldn't be complaining, but I am. And it made me think about, we talked last week about the two sides of silence. How about the two sides of waiting, right? Because there can be a sense, there can be a reality of hope and joy in waiting. Like, for instance, do you remember growing up, like I do, in our local newspaper, and we don't do much with local newspapers now, right? But I used to deliver them, and everybody got a newspaper. And they would start up there in Christmas in the upper hand corner, 25 days till Christmas. And they would count it down, 24, 23, 22. And you know, I would, you know, as a kid, you always say, you say, oh, I can't wait for Christmas. We always say that, right? But the reality is, no, we, we really can because there is a sense of hope and joy in the waiting. It's like we love the waiting, the expectation of, of Christmas morning and what we're going to get. And so we'd say, I can't, I can't wait for Christmas when, when really I could. I enjoyed waiting for it. I remember about 18 years ago, my mom and dad had their 50th anniversary, and so all the kids and all the grandkids, we all went down to, um, <clears throat> to Tennessee, to the Smoky Mountains down there, and spent not quite a week together, but quite a few days together. There were like over 35 of us at the time. It was their 50th anniversary. And we were originally going to surprise them, like send them down there and then I'll show up on them, right, you know? <laughs> and, um, but then we thought, you know, they'd miss out on the expectation for the next, you know, six months or whatever. And so we told them. And so for six months, they looked forward to this event because there is a hope and a joy that can be discovered in our waiting. But at the same time, let's be honest, there can be a frustration in our waiting as well, right? 
And this is where the frustrating intersects with what we talked about last week when we're waiting in the silence, when God is silent and we're just waiting for God to speak into the silence. And so there's an intersection there and a tie-in to last week's. We're in this Christmas series, the original Christmas story. As I said, it's not the traditional Christmas story because the traditional Christmas story, sometimes our traditions are not always true, the facts aren't always right. We're talking about the original story as told in the scripture, looking at the key players and, uh, and how this thing just, just unfolds in the scripture originally and how we can best understand it. And it's built on this, I guess, this caption of when heaven and earth collide. When heaven collided with earth, or here's another way to say it, right, like this, the glory of heaven invaded the obscurity of earth. When the glory of heaven invaded the obscurity of earth, and, and we talked last week about how, when God broke his silence after 400 plus years of silence, and God began to speak once again to uh, the nation of Israel. And the personal application of, of this was to encourage us in our own seasons of silence. It was intended to remind us that even in the silence, God is working. That was last week's big idea. Even in the silence, God is at work. So embrace the silence and, 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 and just, just hang on through the silence because God is simply at work. We want to continue with that theme and build on that thought this morning when we talk about when God keeps his promise. When God keeps his promise. And like those opening verses that I read, maybe there's a promise in there that you're kind of like hanging on to right now in a season of life when you're just waiting for God to work and move. Like, and we know that, all, that, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You're just waiting to see, okay, God, what's this good thing you're doing in the silence? I'm waiting on you. What's this good thing you're doing? And we're clinging to this promise and waiting for God to break his silence and show us how he has moved. And the real question for us this morning, really, when it comes to these times of waiting, can I find hope and joy in my waiting, or do I just find frustration in my waiting? Like when I'm sitting in traffic, do I find hope and joy in that moment to just find a way to embrace it, or do I just get frustrated? Like, how soon can I get off of this road and find another way around? Yeah. I think we've all been there. Today we will look at two individuals of deep faith, Simeon and Anna, primarily Simeon. And just in a chronological sense, last week we started at the beginning of the Christmas story with Zechariah and Elizabeth, and today we're going to the end of the Christmas story with uh, Simeon and Anna, and then we will fill in the blanks in the next several weeks, next, couple, next three weeks really, and a couple of shorter messages there because we have some special things coming up. But, um, but yeah. Really good stuff. In fact, next week, my plan is to celebrate communion. So that'll be good for Christmas. But here is the, the thrust of today's message, the promises of Christmas. Three promises of hope and joy for Simeon, for Anna, and for us. Three promises of hope and joy today. I pray this encourages you, and I have a very simple, yet a very big idea once again. This is the thing you can put on your fridge like you did last week's. Put it on there again. It's simply this. Learn to worship while you wait. Well, how simple is that, right? But how, how big of an idea? Learn to worship while you wait. So let's jump into the story here, right? Luke 2, 22, and, and, uh, and, and Derek read this beautifully for us earlier, but let's pick it up here and walk, kind of walk through it. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written <coughs> in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is good uh, and what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons 
Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And we pick it up here again, three promises of hope and joy. Here's the first promise this morning, the promise to end the work. Like, this is the first promise we have in the Christmas story, that Jesus is going to come and he's going to end the work. What do we mean by the fact that he's going to end the work? Well, I see something immediately develop in the story that's very fascinating when you look at the life of Jesus. He's only 40 years old, and already he's going to identify himself with us. He comes to the temple for this, this Jewish practice, this Jewish ceremony and the Jewish law uh, where, the, where the firstborn, of all the children, the firstborn of the Jewish boys, I should say, were, um, <clears throat> were purified to the Lord. And this was to symbolically point to what? To Christ. This was a symbol of Christ coming, being the firstborn of God sent into the world. And so a beautiful thing happens here. The symbolism and the real- reality collide in Jesus in this, in this very holy moment. The symbolism of, of the sacrifice and the reality of Jesus who has come to do what? to end this sacrifice, to end this whole system, all these sacrifices they offered, it's all gonna be ended. Hebrews tells it this way, for, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come and instead of the true form of, those reali- of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So you see how the ceremony being carried out right here by Jesus, well, he's going to bring this ceremony to an end with his own life and death. He is the fulfillment of this ceremony and, and by extension all the sacrifices that are contained in the law. So the first promise of hope and joy is that Jesus has come to end the work. He came to be the once and for all sacrifice. And I noticed today, I noticed today that when y'all came to worship, no one brought a lamb with them, right? No one brought a lamb to sacrifice for the worship service today because why? Because Jesus came and ended the work of the law. There's this interesting juxtaposition here, is there not? Because what you see in this moment is here's Jesus who wrote the law. He's the one who designed all these sacrifices and wrote the law and and, and passed it on. And now here he is putting himself under that very law. We see the juxtaposition that Jesus, the the reality check is that Jesus is the God-man. He is truly God and truly man. As the glory of heaven invades the obscurity of earth. And here is this one, this little baby. He is both God and he is both man. And I think that really is a bigger challenge for us than we realize. John talks about it over here. John 1.14, and the word, which is Jesus, became flesh and dwelled among us, tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And let me just contend to you today that this is a really, it's a dichotomy that it's hard for us to wrap our head around, that he is both God and he is both man. And I think the challenge for us is that we tend to err on one side or the other. A lot of people will err on the side where they just strip Jesus of his deity. And it's like, yeah, he, he was sent from God, but he's not really God. And uh, he's a good teacher, but, but you know, they just, it's hard for them to see that he is, he is fully God, that created everything. And yet he is 
fully man. And so they strip him of his deity. I think for a lot of us, probably the challenge for me for many years, and I think I've got a really good handle on this now. I understand this now. But it's tough for us not to strip him of his, of his humanity. It's like, but he's God. It's like he, he has to be, you know, certain things because he's God. And to understand that he is God and he's holding the universe together and yet he has surrendered some of his divine privileges and set them down so he could become like you and me, so he could relate to our life so that he could go to the cross. If you take any of his deity and humani- humanity away, he couldn't go to the cross. He couldn't do what he had done. It required him to be both God and man. That's just a fascinating kind of juxtaposition we see here in this story. Um, yeah. Now in a moment, we will see later on in the text here, we're going to jump ahead, fast forward, and just get a glimpse of this. Simeon, Simeon speaks to Jesus' death. Simeon will prophetically speak to Mary about the future crucifixion of Jesus. And I'm not sure if he understood his own prophecy, but I know he proclaimed it, and he, and he pointed it all over the cross. Listen to what he says here in Luke, down in verses 33 through 35. He took Jesus in his arms, and his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. He made a proclamation over him. And and Simeon blessed them, and then said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And watch this, verse 35. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. You know what he's saying there? Remember when Jesus was on the cross and, and he, they crucified him and they wanted to make sure he was dead and they took a spear and they stuck it in his side and water and blood flowed out and they pronounced him dead. And you know what he's saying in this moment that is so beautiful and so powerful? He's saying that the sword that pierced Jesus' side would also pierce Mary's soul. In that moment when she was there watching the crucifixion and when they put that spirit, when they pierced his side and the blood and water flowed out, they would pierce her very soul. And it's just a a pointing to why he came. He came to finish the work. It reminds me of the lyrics of this great Christmas carol. This is the very, this, this carol has three verses and three separate choruses for each verse. And the last chorus says this, Nail spears shall pierce him through the cross he bore for me and you. Hail, hail, the world made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. He is the God-man, truly God and truly man. And he had to be both so that he could die for our sins. Remember when he was hanging on the cross, the last thing he said? His last two phrases, he says, it is finished, into your hands I commit my spirit. And what was finished in that moment? The work of the gospel, the demands of the law were now met, the penalty and wages of our sin was now paid, our redemption, justification, and salvation were complete. And see, Jesus came. This was his greatest promise, really, to come and to finish the work for you and me so that we didn't have this work hanging over our head. He did what we couldn't do. But can I make the promise? I don't know, is is, is it possible to make that promise any better? I don't know. Maybe you can't make it better, but maybe you can. Look, look at this. I want you to see this. Go back to this promise, this, this promise we read earlier in Philippians 1, 6. Watch this. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We started out our year in that verse. Do you remember that way back last January? But look at what's going on in this verse. I'm sure, that, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Here's the promise that is so amazing. If you know Christ as your Savior, if you put your faith and trust in him, look what's going on here. When Jesus ended the work on the cross, he began a good work in you. Can I get an amen? 
when he ended the work on the cross and it was finished, then he began a good work in you. And it's not that we don't do good works today. We're created to do good works. But our good works are just an extension, just an extension of his work in our life. Just an extension of his work in our life. So how great is that? And one last thing here. You know, when you think about this, this promise to end the work, like if you were to give a promise and, and tell somebody, you know, the work is all done and no one's going to have to work anymore because this, at least this job that only Jesus could do, this job is finished. <clears throat> if you were to give that promise to somebody to pass on, who better than, an, than a tired old man, right? Right, a tired old man who's worked his entire life and someone who has, who has been through the, the, the mosaic sacrifice the, the ceremonial sacrifices for thousands of well not thousands of years but for his whole lifetime and he knows what's involved in that and here comes the one who is going to end that you won't need jesus was think about this he, he offered the first sacrifice in the garden of eden he offered the last sacrifice on calvary because that is what he came to do and one, one last thing here um let me just jump ahead here one thing that God is doing here, he is strengthening your faith and deepening your worship. That's what he's doing as he's doing a good work in you. Strengthening your faith and deepening your worship. And I think that's really powerful because what is our response to these times of waiting? These seasons of silence. What? Learn to worship while you wait. And that's what God's doing in your waiting. Teaching you how to be a better worshiper. Teaching you how to trust him even more. And we'll look at what it means to worship towards the end of the message a little bit. But let's go to a second promise here. Verses 27 through 35. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed here's the second promise he promised to end the work and he promised to end the worry he promised to end the worry here's this man he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for the comfort for the consoling for the messiah to come and end all the worry that would consume had consumed israel i was thinking about that you know like i said earlier no one brought a lamb today to worship right this okay so no one brought this lamb imagine back in the day though if you had to bring an animal for the sacrifice. You had to find your lamb and it had to be the best lamb you had. It had to be spotless and without blemish and you would go out there and you had to pick the one out to take it in. You would take your lamb in and you'd be like, okay, I think this is the best I got. I think this is the best lamb. I, I, I think this is, is, is good enough. I hope this is good enough. And, and I'm sure that if you're someone like Simeon and you're devout and righteous in heart, then then God's going to see your heart in that moment. But I just, I thought about the anxiety. Okay, let's pick the right one. He's got to be perfect and spotless and without blemish. And does this disqualify him? And I thought about how Jesus really today is the worry-free life. He is the worry-free life because he finished the work. And, and it's just an amazing thing to stop and think about that. In fact, think about this verse right here. Think about this amazing, two verses here that are really amazing. Romans 12, 1. 
Another very popular verse. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now think about what he's saying in that verse. It's truly amazing what this verse is really communicating. This verse isn't telling us that we have to make ourselves holy and acceptable. It's telling us that we are. And because I'm holy and acceptable because of Christ, I can offer my life as a living sacrifice. So he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Not to be made holy and acceptable, because I am. Because Christ has done the work and made me holy and acceptable. That just turns the whole paradigm of this verse kind of on its head. We are presentable. We are able to be a sacrifice for Christ because he did make me righteous and did make me holy and did make me spotless and pure. Look at this verse over here, Hebrews 13. Through, the, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now think about, think about what he's saying here. Think about this verse. Today I don't bring a sacrifice to worship. I am the sacrifice that worships. I am the holy and, and worthy and pure sacrifice that can worship God because Christ has done the work and made me such. And so today I just offer myself to God in that sense. And we do that the sacrifice of praise with the very songs we sing and the very words that we speak and pray. Hmm. Hmm, hmm. And again, we, we don't do that to be made worthy. My, my, my worship doesn't make me worthy. No, I'm, a, I'm allowed to worship God because he made me worthy. That doesn't discredit how I live. No, I'm supposed to live because I'm supposed to live as I am because I'm worthy. I'm supposed to live up to that. So what we have here is truly remarkable. And what do we do in our waiting? What do we do in God's silence? Well, we learn to worship while we wait. In these moments, we learn to simply worship because God made us a worshiper so that we can endure these seasons. And again, Jesus is the worry-free life. If you just trust him, and we'll see in a moment what it means to kind of just trust and surrender. If you do that, it's the worry-free life. Now here's what Simeon shows us that is so powerful in this text. Simeon shows me how I can have deep peace in a troubled world. Simeon shows us all how we can have deep peace in a troubled world. How many agree that we live in a troubled world, right? Anybody been following the news lately? I think it's funny because, you know, there's a few of us, we're like, you're just a conspiracy theorist the last few years, and now all of a sudden this stuff's coming out in the news and it's like, yeah, it's true. It's actually true. The world is that evil. Hollywood is that evil. Our politicians are that corrupt. I think sometimes we don't realize that things are just as bad as they were in the days of Noah. The world is an evil place. The prince of the power of the air rules it. Just, that just shouldn't cause us to not have hope, but we should understand the world we live in today. We live in a troubled world. And yet, Here's what Simeon says. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word for my eyes have seen your salvation. Understand this verse. Simeon's not saying that he didn't have peace. He had personal peace with God. The spirit was upon him. It tells us that three times. We'll see that in a minute. But the reality is there was a tension in Simeon's life that should probably be in our life. There was a tension that the world was a troubled place and he didn't have peace for the world. And now he could depart in peace because he saw the answer, he saw the hope, he saw the Messiah, he saw the light of the world come that could still the troubled waters of this world. 
Wow. Wow. So the obvious question then is, how do I have peace in a troubled world? Let me walk you through it. Simeon's life, just real briefly, five quick things to see how we have peace in a troubled world. Look at Simeon's heart. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting. And this shows us something about Simeon's heart. Simeon's living in a time when the Jews are under Roman oppression, right? They're under Roman oppression right now. And yet their greatest problem is not even Rome. Their greatest problem is what? Their own sin. And as Malachi, we said last week, Malachi pointed out 400 years before Christ, Israel is spiritually compromised in so many ways. They have such spiritual issues. And even in the text, you can read here that Simeon looks beyond his personal bias to his own people. It's not just that Jesus is coming to be, you know, the glory of Israel. He's coming to be a light of revelation for the Gentiles, it says. He sees Jesus coming for the entire world. And all of this reveals the heart of compassion that, that Simeon had for a hurting world. In fact, in Matthew, when, when the wise men appear ba- back in, in Matthew, we, we get a, a glimpse of the world in that day. Listen to what it says. Here's the troubled world that was existence back in the days when Christ was born. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose and have come to worship him. When Herod, heard the king, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So, so Herod is troubled. Herod's the king and he's troubled. You know, you've heard the whole phrase, right? Like if mom ain't happy, ain't no one happy. Well, let me tell you, if the king is troubled, what does it say? Everyone was troubled. Now, now think about this reality. So, so first we see that Herod was troubled. And why was Herod troubled? Because Jesus, this little baby, crazy as it can be, was a threat to his rule, was a threat to his throne. How can a little baby be a threat to your throne? But he didn't come from his family, and Herod was threatened by Jesus, and so we know how that plays out. But then it says all Jerusalem was troubled as well. Why was all Jerusalem troubled? Was Jesus a threat to them? Well, of course not. Jesus was what? He was the answer. He was the hope. He was what they were looking for. So why were they all troubled, though? They were all troubled because Herod was troubled. And, and they're like, if our king's upset, that could be bad for us. Was it bad for them? What happened? What did Herod do? Killed all the baby boys two years and under. Some of those people that were troubled were rightfully troubled because, hey, King Herod might do something drastic, and he did. And so Herod is troubled and all the people are troubled, but here's the point I'm trying to make here is that Simeon was also troubled. Not for himself, but for the world. And there was a tension in his life There was like, now I can die in peace because now the Messiah has come that can save the world and make things right. But he was troubled for this world. And it begs the question for all of us, how much do I hurt for the world? Do I have a real concern for the people around me who do not know Jesus? That's Simeon's heart. Simeon's heart. Here's another one, right? How do I have peace in a troubled world? Simeon's surrender. It says he came in the Spirit into the temple. In fact, three times in the text it tells us. It tells us the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit and he came in the Spirit into the temple. And let me tell you, the the Spirit is a wonderful thing, right? Until he scares you. You ever been scared by the Spirit? And I don't mean because, you know, somebody's doing some crazy thing and you're being slain in the spirit or something. I'm just talking about sometimes 
the Spirit scares us because where is he going to lead us? What is he going to ask of us? What does he want to do in my life? Yet here's the reality from Simeon's life. How do you have peace in a deep peace in a troubled world? You surrender to the Spirit and you trust him. That's right. You just trust him. And there's another interesting, beautiful story here. Like when Simeon, when the baby comes, Simeon's already at the temple. The Spirit got him there. And we don't know what Simeon was expecting, do we? Did Simeon think he would see a baby? We don't know that. He wasn't told. We don't know what Simeon's expecting. We know what prophetic prophecy had said. but, But what was he expecting to see when he saw the Messiah walk in that day? We don't know for sure. But we know that when Jesus walked in, that Simeon was able to see through the Spirit this is the Messiah. He was able to see spiritually, and I think there's a lesson for all of us here in this troubled world that we live in. We need to, we have the Holy Spirit right here. I wonder how often we see through the eyes of the Spirit every day in our life, that we see all the things around us that God wants us to see. I think that's really powerful. Simeon's surrender, and then there is Simeon's faith. You are letting your servant depart in peace. You're letting your servant now depart in peace. And this just simply says that Simeon took God at his word. That, that God told him that he wouldn't die until he, and, and, and now he had saw it. And now, hey, now I can go. I have seen God's word be fulfilled in my life. Simeon's faith. It reminded me of Abraham and Sarah a little bit. Remember Abraham and Sarah? They're 75 years old and God comes to them and says, you're, you're going to have a child. Right? And then, and then 12 years later, they're 87 and they don't have any kids. They're eight, think about that. 87 years old. Think about that, Mom. 87 years old. <laughs> you don't have a kid. You know, in their defense, you know, they took matters in their own hand, right? They took matters in their own hand and, and took Hagar, the handmaiden, and had a child. And it caused a lot of, yeah, a lot of turmoil, right? And, uh, talk about destroying the peace in your life. But the reality is, in their defense, they're 87 and they're supposed to have a child and it's been 12 years. I mean, yeah. But it's, see, again, just waiting on God's time, having faith in God's, what God said in God's promise and waiting. And then we see eventually at age 100, they give birth to the promised child and, and it's all great. But I just think there's something there about the reality that we need to simply wait. And most commentators agree in this story, there's a lot about Simeon we would like to know specifically and his name is Simeon, and that's one of the most common names in Israel at that time. And most of them are, there's they're Simeon, you know, the rock, and there's Simeon, the Pharisee. There's all these Simeons, and they're, they're all, all the qualifier, except the Simeon doesn't. So no one really knows who this Simeon is. We don't know how old he is, although all commentators agree that he sounds like he's pretty aged. He's ready to, he's ready to leave this world and ready to pass on, and we don't know if he's over 100 or not. Some think he is. Lots of questions. We don't know when he got the promise, how long he's been waiting for the promise. Lots of things we don't know. We just simply know that he had faith. Two things about faith that Simeon can help us with this morning. Here's a practical definition. We do this time to time. You see the story and they help us define faith in a different angle. Faith is trusting the Holy Spirit's leading in your life. There it is. Faith is trusting the Holy Spirit's leading in your life, right? I think that's pretty powerful. Learn to trust the Holy Spirit and walk by faith. And if you, if you follow him, that's what, you know, he'll, he'll lead you where you need to go. And that's kind of walking by faith is trusting the Holy Spirit's leading in your life. And the reality is, how does that then end out? It looks like this. Walking in faith is walking in peace. 
How many think that's a little counterintuitive? How many think, boy, walking in faith is kind of scary, you know? It's like walking in faith. It's like, ooh, what's, what's that going to look like? Where am I going to be led? But the reality is I think there is actually the ability simultaneously when we walk in faith to walk in peace. If we're truly trusting the Lord and surrendering to the Spirit, both of those can be a reality. There's more from Simeon here. How about this Simeon's hope? He says, according to your word. Now I can depart according to your word, according to what you, and and the fact of the matter is, for Simeon, this word right here was hope. He found hope in this. This is full of promises, and he claimed those promises, and he clung to those promises and found hope in God's word. And what's really amazing about God's word here, and there's something for Simeon can teach us, is that, so, so God gave this word directly to Simeon, right? You won't die until you see the Lord's Messiah. You, you won't, it's a personal promise to you, and yet you know what? It's in the word of God. What does that mean? It's to you as well. It's to you and me as well. And there are things in the scripture that we understand this, right? There are things in the scripture that are not written directly to us, but they are certainly for us. Like God didn't tell us to go out and build an ark, but we can learn a lot by Noah building that ark. And so there are things that are not directly to us, but they're for us, and we, we see that with Simeon here, that Simeon has a, prom, a promise directly to him. We don't have that promise. We, we might die before Christ returns, right? We don't, but we can learn from this promise and find hope and encouragement and comfort in this promise every word in the bible can teach us something about who god is his redemptive plan and his work in our life and one of the things we can learn from simeon is that god gives us promises and in the silence he is working in our lives to fulfill said promises however long simeon waited on this promise to be fulfilled you and i we can we can know the same thing these promises in here god is working in the silence we can trust him. We know that all, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Those promises, even when it, God is silent, even when we're waiting, God is working. God is working. And finally, Simeon's testimony. He says, for my eyes have seen your salvation. In the end, if you want to find deep peace in a troubled world, you have to understand the power of your affirmations, understand the power of your personal testimony, what you choose to declare in life. And this was hard to write to some degree because there are a lot of people that misrepresent this and mangle this truth today. A lot of prosperity teachers, you know, talk about the power of our words and declarations and, and they kind of, but the real, there is some truth to the fact that what you declare and what you say and what you proclaim really will have a powerful impact in your life. And Simeon just simply says, my eyes have seen your salvation. And I can say that today. I can say the same thing, that I have seen God's salvation. I have seen God's salvation at work in my life. I have seen God's salvation at work in your life. One of the, one of the most rewarding things of the ministry is just watching people grow spiritually and watching people get a hold of truths and watching families be strengthened and lives be transformed by the power of God's word. My eyes have seen your salvation. That's true. Not that I've seen a vision of Christ. I have just seen his salvation. So in the end, God wants to take the worry out of life. And if you add everything up in Simeon's life, what do you have? If you add Simeon's entire life up, what do you have? You have a life of worship. This is what a life of worship looks like. It's a life of surrender, and it's a life of trust, and it's a life of hope, and it's a life of declaration and praise.
And the reality is, what do you do when you're waiting? Learn to worship while you wait. Learn to worship while you wait. Now, there is one last promise we have this morning briefly, but before we do that, I want to just touch on one other question here first. Here's the question. And it's kind of similar to last week. Last week we asked the question, why did God take Zachariah's ability to, to speak away for nine months? Like that seemed like such a harsh punishment. Like why for nine months could Zachariah not speak? And we saw the beautiful reasoning behind that and how God was working in that kind of a strange, mysterious kind of punishment. But here's the question. Why did God give Simeon this promise? Why have an old man wait on a promise from God? What's, what's the significance of this? What does God want to say through this? Simple thing. Let me give you five quick answers to this really quick here. Number one, so he could partner with the Holy Spirit to proclaim the birth of Christ. One thing Simeon, Simeon is clearly doing here, he's under the influence and direction of the Holy Spirit and he is proclaiming the birth of Christ. And just imagine who in that temple that day heard this. Who else was in the temple? He's out in the public. Who else heard this? Some heard it and for some it was a comfort. For others it was, it was consternation. Whatever it might have been, people heard the declaration that Christ was, been, was born. Here's the second reason why God gave this, old, gave, gave this promise and then waited till he was old to fulfill it. We have here is a picture of the old embracing the new. We have a picture of the old embracing the new. It's kind of like the old covenant is looking and celebrating the new covenant. It's like this is the old covenant of works and sacrifices and law and this is the new covenant of truth and grace. And it celebrates that Christ has come into the world. What a, what a beautiful picture. And then, how about this? Simeon's life of waiting symbolizes how anyone can face death with peace. What a great picture. Like, just think about his attitude. It's like, Lord, now your spirit can depart in peace. I'm ready to go. Anybody here ready to go this morning, right? I was thinking about that. I think Paul describes it best for us in Philippians. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to, to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. And I, agree, I can agree with Paul, I think, this morning. Like, I'm ready to go. But I know I'm needed here. And I know there's ministry to do here and I know there's important things God has for me here and so I'm content, I'm, I'm full of joy but I am, re anybody ready to go this morning? That's what Paul is saying and that's what Simeon is saying. Now your spirit can depart in peace. There is the sense where we can face death with peace. I wonder, are you at peace with death this morning? Like would you be, would you be okay if you didn't wake up tonight and you just went into the afterlife and stood before God? Would you be at peace to say, yeah, I'm ready to go to heaven. I know, I know, I know I'm getting into heaven because Christ did the work and he did the work in me and he's still doing a work in me. Whew. Here's number four. God wants to use us until the moment he calls us home. Ooh. He does. And just look at that. Here's Simeon, old man, tired old man, waiting and God wants to use us until the moment he calls us home. And maybe, maybe your ministry is going to be what my dad's ministry is. He's got a book that's super thick. You, you have a prayer request, give it to my dad, he'll pray for it. He prays for things every day like that. And you know what? You can serve God until the moment he calls you home. You never retire from spiritual service. You just don't. God always has some way to use you. 
I remember the story of uh, Bob Davis, the former pastor here, when he was in the nursing home, and I just remember uh, Nance telling how he just would just, he, he, was, he was kind of giving sermons there in the nursing home. He could hardly move, but he continually praised the Lord. And finally, the last lesson here, number five, Simeon's waiting is symbolic of Israel's and even our own waiting. Like, the picture here is that Simeon, as he is waiting, it is symbolic of our own waiting. Israel's waiting and our own waiting. Israel's been waiting for the Messiah, and it's just encapsulated in Simeon's life, kind of like we said last week with Zechariah. Like, Zechariah couldn't talk, but it, when he talked, it was, it was God breaking his silence, and, and it's a picture of that. And here's the picture of Israel's waiting and even our own waiting. We go through seasons of life when we are waiting for God to talk waiting for God to speak. And Simeon's expression of hope and joy at seeing the baby Jesus and the fulfillment of this promise is reflective of the hope and joy that we can have as we wait on God to fulfill his promises to us. You see, God promised to come and he did and he promised to return and he will. In Simeon's waiting, we can see our own. This brings us to the end of the passage, the addendum with Anna, and the third promise. Very briefly here, this is the third promise this morning. He promised to end the work, promised to end the worry. And then number three, look at this. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of the Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. God has promised to end the waiting. Amen? God's promised to end the waiting. He has. I know, we're tired of waiting. Are you tired? I'm tired. Is is the world exhausting you today? It is. It's wearing us down. I think a lot of us down. We're tired of waiting. We won't wait forever. Are you tired of battling sin? Are you tired of fighting the flesh? Are you tired of the enemy's attacks? Are you tired of being belittled for your beliefs? Are you tired of seeing injustice all over this world? Please know, just as with Simeon and Anna, God will end the waiting. He will. And in the meantime, what do we do? In the meantime, as we're we're waiting on God to end the waiting, what do we do? Learn to worship while you wait. Learn to worship while you wait. What I want to do is close with Anna's life and Anna's worship this morning. And I want us to kind of look at a, at a way we can respond to the message today through Anna's life. But think about what does it look like for us to worship them while we wait? Well, one area of worship is just to find a, find a favorite scripture, to find a promise in the scripture and just cling to it. If you're waiting through a season of life, if God is being silent, just cling to a promise in scripture, read it and cling to it. Read it every day. Maybe there's a person, maybe there's a story, maybe there's a Bible character and just cling to that person's life and his testimony and his example. The second thing is find a song of praise or, or find a worship song or, or, or find a, a hymn that you, that, and just embrace that hymn and sing that hymn to yourself every day and sing it in the choir and sing it, sing it in the shower and sing it when you're sitting in traffic and it's all backed up and you're complaining. You know, Just sing that song of praise right then. Those are ways that we can respond and worship in the waiting. But I want you to look um, at Simeon's life a minute. Here, here's one of the promises. How did Anna worship while she waited? Let's just look at how Anna worshiped while she waited. And we'll walk through her life and we can see exactly how she worshiped. Number one, 
She was faithful. It said she did not depart from the temple night and day. She was a widow. She might have lived there or lived right around there, but she was always at the temple. She was faithful. That's one thing you can do in your waiting, just be faithful. Just worship God by being faithful and just trusting him. Second thing, she was determined. She was worshiping with fasting. And the point of this is not to emphasize the fasting. It could be that maybe you're led to fast, but it it just could be she was determined and she was worshiping with fasting or with singing or, you know, with scripture or with whatever God the Spirit led her to do. She was determined in this season to pray that audacious prayer we talked about last week and just ask God to do his work in her life in the silence and as she waited. And she was intimate. She worshiped with uh, praying. I, I missed that. There we go. She was intimate. She worshiped with prayer, with prayer, with praying. And she just prayed to God and talked to God about her issue. And even if it seems like God is silent and God's not responding, he hears you. Just keep talking to him. Just keep praying to him. And she was, lastly, she was ready. That very hour, that very hour at just the right time, she comes into the temple when Jesus is there, the Spirit leads her in. At that very hour, she was ready to declare and proclaim praise over the newborn Messiah. Let me leave you with this comment. As we close today, here is my final thought. Besides Christ's coming and our salvation, I was thinking about two of the greatest gifts that God has given us. First, He has given us the gift of worship. Think about that. Do you see worship as a gift? It is. The ability we have to worship him and the fact that he has made us, as we said earlier, holy and righteous. Like, I don't bring a sacrifice, I am the sacrifice. I offer myself in worship. He has made me the ability to be an acceptable worshiper. But here's the second gift God has given us. How about this? God has given us the gift of waiting. What? (laughs) What? Waiting's a gift? It is if you receive it that way and allow God to do his work in your life. It is is in the waiting that God can do his greatest work in our life. And the amazing thing is, he has given us just the gift to navigate the waiting and those seasons of silence, the gift of worship. So he's made us worshipers and we can worship him. And in those seasons of silence, in those seasons when we're waiting, we simply can worship. When we learn to accept God's timing and wait on his best and when we worship him as we wait, there is hope and joy and peace found in that space. A hope, joy, and peace that we will find nowhere else and that, my friends, is the culmination of the original Christmas story. Father God, thank you so much for your love, for your hope, for your joy, for your peace. Thank you for the message of Christmas and thank you for those faithful individuals like Simeon and even Anna that show us what it's like to to wait and to wait with hope and to joy and to trust and to be a good example. And thank you for their declaration that they have seen your salvation. May we see it in our own lives, may we see it in the lives of others, and may we live with that tension where we have peace, but the troubled world around us doesn't, and there's a part of us that is troubled for this world. And we're praying for this world and for those we know who don't know Christ. Bless the rest of our week for your honor and for your glory. Go before us in all that we do. Open our eyes to see you in all your goodness. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Amen.